Something I love about our staff, man, everyone is a workhorse. Like Pastor Steve, all the directors, everyone works so hard. And so for me to just rub shoulders with them, it's just, oh my goodness. Uh, they're such an example. We're blessed. We're blessed to have people who are really invested and love uh, the church and you guys. And so, hey, good morning. It's great to see all of you. Just get like, we need some more coffee. All right, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, a couple quick other announcements. If you look on the screen, uh, you know, it is retreat season. All right. And so uh, just uh, whether it's youth group, college group, post-college, I mean, retreats are locked and loaded, firing on all cylinders. And so, and, and these are coming up. They're all right around the corner. And so uh, digitally on the website and so forth, you can register. Also, there, there might be some stations today outside on the patio. And so please take advantage of these. Uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. And you know, if, if you're a, a parent of a kid in youth group, even for me, a lot of my inflection points spiritually, uh, profound things happen at retreats. And so, yes, school is important. I get it. Sports is important. But uh, let's also think eternity. Uh, let's have that in mind as well. All right. Uh, second announcement is we have Grow 101. Uh, you know, we believe that if, if you believe Jesus, if you are one with Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, uh, you also are one with his body, his people. Like it's a package deal. You get Jesus, you get his people, the church. And so uh, 101 is really about church membership. And so if you're not a member and you're interested and you just want, you don't, you're not sure if you want to commit yet, but you want to find out more, please attend the class uh, and, and find out more at the end of the class. You do not have to become a member, but you can learn and grow. And so also uh, there is a, uh, a table outside today after second service. All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's get into God's word. If you could take your Bibles or fire up your phones and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. It is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. And if you could help me by, uh, once you find your place, if you could kind of stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word uh, together. So John 11. And I'll be uh, reading from verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, he had already been dead in the tomb for about four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to uh, Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went up, she went and met him. But Mary, Mary remained seated in the house. Now, Martha, she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? And Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, hey, the teacher, Jesus is here, and he's calling for you. And so when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not uh, yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with uh, her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, 
And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid Lazarus? And they said to him, come, Lord, and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews, they said, see how he loved Lazarus? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, Take away the stone. But Martha, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. But Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I pray that by, by your power, you would awaken our hearts to see you. Not, not, what we th- not the Jesus that we want to imagine, but the Jesus of the Bible. And I pray that you would cause, you would stir our hearts to relate with you in a way that's appropriate to who you actually are, your greatness and grandness. So move us to that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may all be seated. You know, I don't know about you, if you've ever uh, gone like shopping for a home or whatnot, but apparently, apparently, and this is what I've heard, uh, one of the most important things when you look for a home is what's known as the floor plan, which is, I mean, to me, as long as a house is a floor, that sounds like a plan to me, right? Uh, But, and the reason why is because a floor plan, essentially, it really is uh, the layout of the rooms in a house and how they're arranged together so uh, the rooms are kind of, uh, they, they have this relationship with one another, and there's a traffic flow and so forth. And apparently, uh, the reason why this matters is because good floor plans, good arrangements, uh, good rooms being laid out in relationship to one another, uh, when they actually can facilitate better human relationships and interaction. And furthermore, if you ever want to renovate or uh, do some expansion work, you can actually do that with a good floor plan. And, but that's precisely why uh, and the problem with a bad floor plan is that when you, it's hard to renovate a house with a bad floor plan. And furthermore, bad floor plans can actually obstruct and, and create barriers in terms of human uh, interaction. Now, here's uh, why I kind of bring this up. Uh, because when it comes to the local church, this, what we do here, uh, I believe that God actually has a divine floor plan that he has laid out for his people in terms of how uh, he wants us to relate with him and to one another. So, you know, last Sunday, if you weren't here, uh, Pastor Steve, he preached a sermon uh, about our church. And we're kind, we're kind of tracking this year called A Church to Call Home. And I love that, that vision for our church and, and, and uh, kind of the words, the vernacular, because, look, we have a, a God who is our father. He is the father of this home. But furthermore, God is not just our father, but he is actually the architect. Uh, He has a divine design and a blueprint for how he wants our home, this church, and every church uh, to actually function together in a way uh, that that brings glory to him. And that just, it it fulfills his desires because he's good and he has a plan for us. And so for the next three Sundays, uh, what we're going to do is talk about three key rooms for our church or three components for what really matters for our church. So one Sunday, for example, uh, we're going to talk about like, like the living room 
Or in other words, Christian community and how fellowship, how we relate with each other, it's so important. So the living room. But another room that we're going to talk about uh, is really like the front door. Uh, Because that's where, yeah, people come in to the church, but it's also where people go out for mission. And so kind of the kingdom cause, that component of the church, uh, we're going to talk about uh, that as well. Uh, But this morning, uh, what I'm going to talk about is uh, actually our relationship to Jesus. How we relate uh, with our very Savior, with our God. In other words, uh, the kind of room that I'm going to talk about is really the, the dining area. Or it's the dining table. You know, uh, there's something interesting about the dining table, dining area. It kind of serves this very important, crucial thing in a home, doesn't it? Because it kind of brings these intangibles. On the one hand, uh, it's the dining area that really nourishes uh, the body uh, of the family so that it energizes every single member of the, bo- of the family to go and do what they have to do. But secondarily, it, it creates uh, this this space where there can be serious conversations that happen in the dining area, or other times it's just the same conversations over and over and over again, but those same conversations, it kind of creates this uh, base foundation of trust, right? And so the dining area really becomes the glue of the family. And so my contention this morning uh, is that Christ is actually the glue of all that we do as the church, That Christ is actually the one that nourishes us uh, and energizes us so that when we do relationship and community, it's Christ-centered. So that even when we do kingdom cause, it's really about, with, through, for Jesus. Because here's the reality. Without Jesus, uh, the church makes no sense. Without Jesus, there would be no church. Without Jesus, Christian community would really just be social. Right? It would be sociology. Without Christ uh, being on mission, it would really be altruism, which is good. But if, we're, if, it, if it's really about that, then we should just do it through nonprofits because they do it better anyways. And so if we build a church, if we focus on church and leave Jesus out of the equation, we are in grave danger of building something that is merely rooted in sociology or altruism, but not lift theology in relationship with the living God. And so it is crucial for us as the church to really uh, make sure that Christ and and our relationship with him and beholding him is one of the central components of all that we do. But even furthermore, not just what we do as a church, but as individuals. Because you and I, just as human beings, we, we we have this problem. We have this addiction problem called worship. Where you and I, our hearts are wired and fashioned in a way where we cannot help but serve something, pursue something, adore something, commit our lives to something that our hearts deem is good and valuable and worthy. And this is true whether you're religious or irreligious, it's irrelevant. Everyone is worshiping. But the problem is that when we worship at the dining table of the world, uh, not only does it uh, never leave us satisfied, but furthermore, whatever we bow down to ultimately will have catastrophic uh, results in our soul. It will make us hollow and empty. And so this is why Christ, who has declared himself to be the bread of life, when we come before him and we come to the dining table of Christ, and we individually, but as the church, when we gather around our Jesus and we feed on the glory and the goodness and the grandness of who he is. Not only does it fill our 
our beings, the center of our hearts, with true joy, which is what we've been designed for. But even as the church, it actually energizes us so that all that we do, it's done with the right motive and focus and end. Now, at this moment, almost every one of us, we're we're saying, amen. I agree. And that is part of the problem. Because while it's one thing for us to agree with something, it is entirely something different for us to abide in someone. I'll say that one more time. It's one thing for us to agree with something, but it's something totally different to abide in someone. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, of course, like, yeah, I've heard that before, that's correct. But it's something else to posture our lives and structure our lives where we really believe that loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, following Jesus, It's not even just primary, it's central. It energizes everything that we are and all that we do. And so here's here's my aim this morning, okay? My aim is, it's really simple. I'm not gonna be able to do it on my own power, so I'm just gonna rely on on, on the Spirit through His Word. But my aim is to motivate and inspire you to desire Jesus more. That's it. But here's how we're gonna do this. Uh, We're going to do this through um, a character study. Uh, This is not normally how I would preach a text. Uh, But, you know, the story that we read, there are two characters, and it's really fascinating because both of them, they relate with Jesus in a particular way. Now, uh, the way that both relate with Jesus, they're both acceptable. Like, no one is doing something wrong, per se, okay? So both of them are relating with Jesus, but one person is relating with Jesus far better than the other person, far better than the other person. And so my aim is that as we kind of do a character study, that it would hold up a mirror for you. So you can ask yourself, how am I relating with Jesus? Is Christ really central in my life? And is Christ really central in all that we do when we gather as the church? Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Y'all ready? Okay, the caffeine's wore off. So here we go. The first character that we're going to look at uh, is the character Martha. Martha. Martha, Martha. Now, uh, if I could uh, quickly characterize the way that she relates with Jesus, here's how I would quickly describe it. Martha relates with Jesus unbelievably properly. Like proper is the word that comes to my mind. Meaning the way that she relates with Jesus and does relationship with Jesus, it's everything that's culturally acceptable. So, you know, by the way, if, if, like, if you're ever uh, going on a dinner and it's like with distinguished guests and, and you need a plus one, like you're not taking Lazarus, you, you're definitely not taking Mary. Do not take Mary, you're gonna get in trouble. You're taking Martha. Because she's always gonna do that which is culturally acceptable, right? Uh, So like, let me uh, give you some examples of how uh, Martha relates with Jesus in this way. So the first time Martha ever shows up, she shows up three times in the Gospels, three times in the New Testament, every single time, so proper. The first time she shows up, uh, which is Luke 10, Jesus is at their house, an amazing guest, a distinguished guest of honor. Do you know what Martha is doing? She is running around so busy playing host. Why? 
because that's exactly culturally in their day what you were supposed to do when a Jewish rabbi who's performing miracles, calling himself the Messiah, comes to your house. That's what you're supposed to do. So what Martha was doing, extremely proper and appropriate. In the last scene, in the last scene that Martha's in, uh, it's someone else's house. It's not even her house. It's Simon the leper's house. Jesus is also there. You know what she's doing again? She's serving. It's not even her house, and she is still playing host. Very proper, the way that she relates with Jesus. How about, how about the story that we read today? You do realize, you know the story that I read today, contextually, it, it's a, a moment of great grief for Martha. Like Martha is under immense pain. Her brother has just died, and Jesus was not there. Like the miracle worker, if he were there, he might have lived. Her brother might have lived, but he wasn't there. But notice, did you notice how Martha, the way that she relates with him? First of all, when, uh, when she hears that Jesus is in a far off distance, she does not even wait for Jesus to show up. She gets up and she goes all the way out past her village to go and meet this distinguished guest of honor, right? Amazingly proper. But furthermore, what does she say to Jesus? She goes, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, but, but even now, even now, I mean, I, I still know that whatever you ask of God, God's going to give it to you. You notice how proper that is? Like she's like, oh, if you'd been here, maybe things could have been different, but I still trust you. Uh, oh, you're, I, I trust in your sovereignty. That, that's the big uh, Christian word, right? So uh, let me just drop that. I believe that you're sovereign. Jesus responds, your brother's going to rise again. You know what Martha responds with? Oh, I know he's going to rise again on the last day. Now, here's why uh, this is so significant. A few months prior to this moment, Jesus had been going around teaching, if you be- those who believe in me, they're going to rise again on the last day. So a few months prior, Jesus was traveling, teaching that very thing. Which means that Martha, she's been doing her research. Like she's been doing her theological uh, right, studies, right? She's been paying attention to desiringjesusofnazareth.org, right? She's tuned in to TGC Jerusalem, right? She's doing her daily uh, Jesus uh, journals, right? And, and life journals, right? She's tuned in. And so amazingly proper, Jesus is like, oh, he's gonna rise again. Oh, I know Jesus. I mean, I've been paying attention to what you've been saying. I know he's gonna rise again on the last day. And so Jesus is like, oh, okay, like you wanna do this right now. All right. And so Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Like, I embody life. I am life. I'm the one that gives not just biological life, but deeper life, the life that God created us for. I'm that. And he, he says, and in fact, anyone who dies, but they believe in me, they're going to rise again. In fact, if you believe that about me, you're never going to die. And so he says, Martha, do you believe that? And Martha, of course, responds to the first ever altar call. Yes, Lord. I do. She says, yes. And she layers her answers with with titles. Yes, Lord, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. Just at every single moment in this, you realize her brother just died. She is, she should be grieving. But at every single moment with white knuckled discipline, she just like, I'm going to give the right answer. I'm going to give the proper thing. Like, I'm just like, if I can say this, I know Martha often, she gets beat up at church, right? Like, it's like, everyone loves Mary, but not Martha. But can I just say this? I, would, I want Marthas to join our church. Like, I would love our membership roster just be filled with Marthas, right? Like, they work hard. They're serving all the time. They're always giving the right answer. They're never causing trouble. I love Martha. Okay, I'm like the only one here. I'm, I'm way too passionate about Martha right now. But here's the problem with Martha. Though she relates with Jesus properly, she finds Jesus himself a little improper. 
meaning she is so focused on relating with Jesus properly that in the midst of, I need to do this for Jesus and this, this is what I need to do right now. This is what's culturally acceptable. And in the midst of pursuing that so much, she actually loses sight of Jesus himself to the point that Jesus himself becomes like, oh my gosh, like you're, you're in the way. Like he almost becomes a little annoying. Like you're the, he, Jesus becomes a barrier. He becomes what's vexing to her. Like, like you're, not, you're not getting on board here with what, like, I'm, how I'm supposed to be relating and, and re- relating with you, with you and, and growing in knowledge of your grace. Like, you're not getting on board here. Isn't this true? You know how I know this in this story? When Jesus, she's like, yes, Lord, I believe, I believe. And so Jesus, when he goes to Lazarus, right, and he's like, hey, remove the stone. Who's the one who objects? Martha. Martha's like, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you're the resurrection and the life. Yes, Lord, I believe that those who believe in you, they'll never die. Yes, Lord. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you're not going to raise him from the dead, are you? Like, he's been dead four days. And, you know, King James Version, it says, he stinketh, right? He stinketh. Like, the kids are going to get freaked out. They're not going to, you know, sign up for VBS. It's going to be terrible, right? Like, she finds Jesus to be improper, even though she's saying all the right answers, And in fact, in the first time, in the first scene that Martha shows up, when Mary is sitting at his feet, do you remember what she says to Jesus? She rebukes Jesus. She's like, Jesus, I'm like running around doing all this. Tell my sister to help me. Like, what's wrong with her? She is so frustrated with Jesus that her relating with Jesus properly actually got in the way of seeing who Jesus is, all that he has declared himself to be, all of his desires, and all that he's, he's working out in, in history to the degree that Jesus just seemed totally out of her box. See, we are Martha this morning when you relate with Jesus amazingly properly. Like, you know, some of us, like, like you, you, you're, you're, you come to church every Sunday, right? Like, or most Sundays, right? You, you come to church and, and you're always here and, and you, you do your best to tithe. You, feel, you tithe online, but you feel guilty that you don't put anything you know, in the box because you feel like people are judging you, right? And so you just, right, you just act like you're putting something in. Uh, uh, you serve. You serve because when you became a member, you promised that you would serve. And so because you made that declaration, you're like, well, if I say that, then I should actually live that. That would be the proper thing to do. But the problem is that while we relate with Jesus properly, we were pursuing that so much that we've lost sight of Jesus and Jesus is kind of annoying to us. Like we're bored with Jesus. We're not, there's no awe over Jesus. We're not amazed by who he is and what he has said and what he's doing. And in fact, we're almost like, Jesus, like, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. Like that person, like that person isn't even uh, living the right way, Jesus. Like wake up that person. I'm serving, I'm doing all these righteous things. What about that person? That person's lazy. And in fact, we'll be grieving. We're going through a season of trials. And Jesus, I'm saying all the right answers. I'm making all the right prayers. I believe that you're sovereign. I believe that even now you can do whatever you say. But then when something doesn't happen the way that we think it should, we're like, well, I'm being faithful. No, don't open that door. You don't want to open that door. You should do this. I'm going to correct you, Jesus. And so Martha, she relates with Jesus properly. The problem is that she finds Jesus improper because the way that she relates with Jesus, uh, her her little box, that square, has squeezed Jesus himself out of the equation. That's Martha. Now there's a second character, Mary. 
Now we need to talk about Mary. Okay, Mary stresses me out. She, she stresses me out. She, she worries me. Mary is the complete, I had a hard time even saying the word complete, complete opposite of Martha. The way that she relates with Jesus, totally improper. To the cultural standards of their day, absolutely horrendously scandalous. I don't know if you caught it in the text, um, but Mary is not happy with Jesus in the story that we read. Like scholars and commentators, they're too shy to include this in their works, but Mary is clearly acting Asian passive aggressive towards Jesus. There's a lot of Asian mom passive aggressiveness a little bit of accusatory undertone of like a little jab here in the rib. Because, you know, did you notice the way that the text, and I don't know, the way that I was reading the text, I was trying to demonstrate uh, how the text seems to juxtapatize, right? That's the biggest word that I ever know, right? To demonstrate how different they are in their responses, right? So Jesus is coming by. It says, Martha, when she heard that he was far off, she got up, went out to greet Jesus. But it says, Mary remained in the home. She's like, I'm not going. I'm not, I'm not going to go greet Jesus. Martha, she goes out to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I believe that whatever you ask, God will grant it to you. Mary, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Period. My translation, Martha, Lord, maybe if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I still trust you, though. Mary, where were you? You, you, you've been talking about this whole resurrection stuff. Where were you? You were supposed to be here. Like if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? Which culturally in the first century for a woman to treat not even just a male, not even just a Jewish male, but a Jewish rabbi male who was declaring himself to be God. That is a slap in the face if I've ever seen one. Totally culturally improper. Oh, and by the way, if you think I'm like, you're bending the text a little bit to mean that, right? No. In the first story that Mary shows up, what is she doing? Uh, Luke 10 says she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings, which is scandalous in their day. Why? Because sitting at someone's feet was the posture of disciples, reserved only for males. Only males we're allowed to sit at the feet of the rabbi to listen. For a woman to sit at the feet of a Jewish male teacher, totally culturally unacceptable. In the last scene that she shows up, you know what she's doing? Not only does she sit at Jesus' feet, she interrupts a dinner party. That's strike one. Approaches a male guest. That's strike two. Approaches a male Jewish guest. Strike three. I'm just going to stop with the strikes. There's a lot of strikes coming, okay? Uh, she goes to Jesus, and then she takes out a perfume jar that's worth a... a an annual year's worth of salary. So some of us wives, imagine if your husband took one year of salary and just did sports fantasy, right? Like that would anger you. I felt like I hit a couple of nerves here. Like some of us are like, guys are like, don't go there, right? And just dumped, and some scholars say that that pure nard, it was an heirloom. In their day, do you know how valuable and sentimental that was? That was the memory of her mother's 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 mother. And she takes it and pours it out on Jesus' feet. 
She lets down her hair culturally. Uh-oh, that's like, you know, that's only what sexually loose woman did in the first century. And she takes her hair and washes Jesus' feet. The washing of feet only reserved for first century slaves. Utterly scandalous. You know what, what Mary would be like if, if she was at our church? Like she's the girl who is um, never giving guys side hugs. She's always giving full frontal hugs, right? Making all of us a little bit nervous, right? She's singing on the praise team wearing a half tee, right? A jeans coming up to like right here, right? She's walking around. She doesn't even call Pastor Steve, Pastor. She just calls him Steve. It's crazy. What are you doing? Totally inappropriate. Absolutely improper. But here's what's crazy. Though Mary relates with Jesus so improperly, Jesus always finds Mary's worship proper. He always defends her. He is always moved by her. He always praises her. Luke 10, he rebukes Martha. Mary has chosen the greater portion. And what she has done, leave her alone. Here, when she just falls at his, weep, uh, at his feet and weeps, it moves. She's the one who makes Jesus cry. She's the one who catalyzes Jesus to go and resurrect Lazarus. In the last scene, the disciples were like, oh, what a waste. That could have been sold and, and, and done something more like practical. It could have been given to the poor. We could have been on mission. Jesus says, leave her alone. What she's done, beautiful thing for me. And in fact, what she's done, it's going to be recorded down for generations to come. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still remembering what she did. Why? Why does Jesus find Mary's improper relationship with Jesus so proper? Why? What did Mary do right? And furthermore, what if I told you that the answer to that question is also the same answer to why Jesus found Mary's proper relationship relating to him a little improper? It's the same thing. So what, what is it? What, what, what was the difference between them two? It's a small, tiny difference. But this small, tiny difference makes all the difference. Here's the difference. The difference is that while both of them heard Jesus, his words, his teachings, only one of them truly listened. Let me say that again. While both of them heard Jesus' teachings, only one was actually listening. You know, there's a profound difference between just hearing something and really listening in a way where it absorbs and you intake it and you internalize it and it changes you. There's a massive difference, isn't there? This past Thursday, um, you know, I was uh, doing something in the home. I had to run to the backyard to take care of something. My wife was feeding the baby. My other, my other two kids, one was at the gym, the other one was at Costco. I don't even remember. Um, and so... Um, and, and so I was running over to the backyard, and my wife, she said something. And I was like, oh, okay, 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 okay. But I kept going to the backyard to do what I needed to do. And she goes, honey. And whenever she says that, I'm like, I did something wrong. She goes, honey. I'm like, yeah. She goes, honey, you literally did not even hear what I was just saying. I said, can I have a drink of water? And I was like, oh. So I, I heard stuff but I was not listening. There's a profound difference between just hearing and listening. Mary was a listener. She listened. You know how I know this? 
You know, in Luke 10, when it says that she sat and listened to Jesus's, uh, she sat at Jesus' feet and listened. I mean, that, that must have been annoying for Martha, right? But you know how we can know for sure that she was listening. Here's how we can know. Is that when her brother dies, when she comes to Jesus and says, where were you? Where were you? He wouldn't have died. See, it's not her accusing Jesus in a sinful way. She's actually just relating with Jesus the way that Jesus said he was. She's like, I listened to your teachings. You said that those who believe in you would never die. But my brother died. What the heck? I heard you. I listened to you. That's what you said. You said, and I trust, I believed you. And that's why when Jesus goes to remove the stone, who's silent? Mary. Mary's silent. It's almost as if she's like, is something going to happen right now? Is Jesus going to do something right now? In the last scene, when she's pouring everything out on the, 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 the perfume, you know what Jesus says about what she did? He says, leave her alone. She is anointing my body for burial. Now, why would Mary anoint Jesus' body for burial before he dies. Like, that's almost offensive, right? It's like, I hope you die. Why would she do that? Could it be that while every single person in the gospels, all of his disciples, they were never listening to Jesus, right? They're all like, oh, we're gonna do whatever we want. No one's listening, but Mary was actually listening. She was like, wait, so you're the resurrection and the life. Wait, like, wait, so my brother came out of the tomb but you, you keep talking about dying. So maybe the way that you save sinners, maybe the way that you resurrect sinners out of their tomb is that you, Jesus, must first step into your own tomb. You must die. So I'm gonna anoint your body for burial. And so when Jesus is being crucified, who's not there? Mary. At the resurrection, who's not there? Mary. Why? Because maybe she was listening. And so she already knew. See, because Mary listened at the feet of Jesus, she was able to grieve honestly at the feet of Jesus. And that's why in light of Jesus' amazing salvation work, she was able to extravagantly worship at the feet of Jesus. Mary's the only character in the New Testament where every time she is mentioned, she is at Jesus' feet the posture of a disciple. It's an inefficient posture, isn't it? Back then, you cannot do a lot if you're sitting. But Martha, you know what Luke 10 says? Martha, this is not me, this is Luke 10. Martha was distracted with much serving. It's interesting. It doesn't say Martha was serving. It says Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, is serving bad? No, serving is good. But serving becomes dangerous when it becomes the focal point to the degree that it derails us and distracts us from the disciples' posture of listening to that which is central and primary and preeminent in who Jesus is. And so because she wasn't really listening, because she was so busy, she didn't get it. Jesus was a barrier. So when we kind of sort of hear what Jesus says, Jesus becomes a barrier to our lives. But when we listen truly to what Jesus is saying, he is beautiful. 
Where are you this morning? Do you find Jesus beautiful? Like as you're, as you're going through your difficult time, can you honestly sit at his feet and say, I believe you. I'm frustrated because I believe what you said. When you think about his amazing act of salvation in your life, does it cause you to say, oh my gosh, I, I, there's nothing I can withhold. I give you everything. I give you my life. And if I could give you more, I would. Or are we distracted with a lot of good things? A lot of good things. This is why sitting and listening and taking on the disciples' posture is so important. Because it adds fuel and wood to the flame of our devotion to Jesus. You know, if I can just say, say this, you know, uh, do you know why we do what we do as a church? Like, you know, why do we gather here on Sunday mornings? Why do we do this? It is not to keep the, the living whole business alive. That's not why we gather. We gather corporately because we sit, we have to stop, and the teachings of Jesus, the words of God are going forth. Not my words, not any Stafford's words, but the words of God are going forth, and we are sitting and listening. You know, like we have our church, we have Grow. It's like our discipleship classes. Grow 201, it teaches us and trains us to be able to read the Bible on our own. Do you know why that class matters? It's so that when we go away from Sunday, we are not reliant on a man, a preacher, but we can actually take the the disciples' posture and sit and open this book and say, I'm going to listen to my teacher. I want to listen to what you, what are you saying? through this, about who you are, what you've done, what you're doing, and how that applies in my life. That's why it matters. You know, we have like a prayer, prayer gatherings, right? We have EM, early morning prayer on Saturday mornings. We have prayer chapel. Why do those things matter? Yeah, it's so that we can talk to God, but it's also so that our lives slow down enough so that we actually, because we, we all kind of know like, oh, I think God is kind of saying something, but it forces us to stop and actually deal with that reality. God, I think you're saying this. You're convicting me in this way, but I am not compliant. And so I want to duke this out with you right now. I'm having a hard time. That's why we do what we do. But as we do that, our hearts as human beings are filled with the grandness and goodness of God. You know, Mary, when she was dumping out that perfume, she wasn't like, oh my gosh, this costs so much. That's not what she was thinking. She was like, I have Jesus. I get Jesus, I get you. That's what she was thinking. And as we gather together as a corporate church and we do this, we go, our God is amazing. So that when we do community and cell group, it is not just social. And when we go on mission and do kingdom cause, it is not just altruism, but it is all worship to our Jesus. And that's why it's the dining table. We feast on the glory of our God. You know, if I could just share a little bit of a confession Sometimes I get bored with Jesus. It's probably not something you, you want to say uh, on the Sunday where they're having an ordination service for you. Uh, but sometimes I get bored with Jesus. Do you know when I get bored with Jesus? I get bored with Jesus because sometimes I become deceived to think that Jesus is just really interested only primarily in making bad people become more good people. 
that's when I get so bored with Jesus. Because if I was really paying attention to this book and what he was saying, what we, we would find is, yeah, Jesus is, sure, of course, he does want to make bad people into good people, whatever that means. But far more importantly, Jesus is about making dead people alive people. Amen? That's what Jesus exists for. That, 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 that's what he does. That's an amazing Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. And so when we, when we gather at his feet and, and, and we, we're, we're not talking to a life coach, like, so how do you feel today? How did that make you? No, he's like the Lion of Judah. He's like, there's fire coming out of his eyes. And he's like, I've created everything. I'm recreating everything. And I'm glorious and unstoppable. And you get me. You get to spend time with me. That's how lucky you are today. You can have the worst day ever and you have me. And that should be more than enough for you. That's who we have. And that's the amazing thing about our salvation. But can I just, if I can just sneak this in here. By the way, this is why baptism matters. This is why we do baptism, by the way. You know, like some of us, I know we're like, I don't want to get baptized because, you know, my story is not that interesting. And like, I don't want to speak publicly. We know. Like, we already, we're not trying to look for the most exciting story. Most of our stories are not that exciting. We know that. The reason why, I'm sorry if that offends you. The reason why baptism matters is because we get to see how great our Jesus is. We get to say, in your story, we actually see a Jesus who brings dead men and women to life in him. That's why baptism matters. So quick plug for baptism. But when we see our Jesus, who he is, what a privilege. But we must sit at the feet of Jesus that we might worship him as he is. You know, uh, this morning, uh, I'm really excited because uh, we're actually going to have a testimony because it's one thing for me to talk about the reality of how great our Jesus is, that he makes dead men living men, dead women living women. Uh, But it's something else to actually hear it from someone, share how Jesus has done this, right? And so um, I'm really excited. Uh, Derek, uh, he's a primer at our church. Uh, He finished college, and and he's going to share just how the resurrection and the life, Jesus, has uh, brought him from death to life. All right, so could we welcome up Derek?